Bet365 sponsors the TIFO Football Podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers and with over 45 million members it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can now follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today I'm joined by Alex Stewart. Good morning. And Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi Joe. Welcome one and all. Uh, today, the three amigos, you and I, will be discussing broad themes, broad ideas that came off the basis of a few of the weekend's games. Uh, we're going to start by talking about Fulham and Arsenal. As part of that, we'll discuss Gabrielle, of course, and William, and we might discuss the goalkeeping position too. Uh, but beyond that in the podcast, we'll be discussing Liverpool, Leeds, very exciting, and Tottenham-Everton, which I'm most personally excited about because I, I very much enjoyed watching that game. But something that has no negatives is the athletic. Uh, if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you will be able to download the Athletic app currently for an introductory offer of £1 a month, which is exceptionally uh, cheap for something well, for full access to an incredible app with all sorts of features. Um, and the, my favourite thing about it is that you don't have to compromise with the Athletic if you are, uh, you know, an Everton supporter, for example. We're going to come to talk about Everton later. I'm pretty sure you're going to want to be reading the, the full-length features and the interviews and the analysis uh, about your team this season because everything's very exciting, isn't it? So for £1 a month, you can join the crew. That is theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. I would highly encourage you to do that. And it makes me look good at my workplace. So please do it for me. Anyway, uh, that's all. I will leave you in the, uh, the cool hands and the warm embrace of Alex and Seb. Okay, let us begin, as we said we would, with Fulham Arsenal. Fulham nil, of course. Three Arsenal, that's how it's written. I like to read the scores in that order. Um, let's begin at an obvious place, Seb. Uh, Gabriel, uh, it was his first performance. Tell me, what did you think about him? I'm going to come to Alex also to ask uh, what we learned about him being exposed to the Fulham attack. But first, I want to hear uh, your, your initial hot take because he had a bit of a wobbly start. I feel like people have forgotten that because of the goal. In a way, though, I feel better about him as a result of that because it would have been very easy had that happened. Um, for him to kind of disappear into himself a little bit because that's a pretty um I mean it's it's different because there were no no fans it wasn't a particularly hostile atmosphere at Craven Cottage of course uh, but that's quite an unsettling moment for a young player you come into a new league a new team in a new country and one of the first things you do is you nearly give the opposition a goal and get your own goalkeeper sent off <laughs> yeah so actually in a way you could spin that and say what a recovery because he had a very solid game I concede that Fulham were no sort of presence um you know, uh, at the other end of the pitch. Uh, so he will face other challenges throughout the season. But it was assured, wasn't it? I mean, um, you know, nice goal, always good. But a good recovery, good mental strength. Um, bit tenuous, but yeah, really encouraging. Alex, uh, what about you? Uh, yes, I mean, he was encouraging for sure. Um, I think the the 
benefits of having a, a left-sided centre-back with a left foot uh, were obvious. Tom Warville did a really, really good piece uh, on that just before the weekend, um, explaining why left-sided centre-backs are so important in terms of opening up passing lanes from that side of the pitch. Uh, why with... is it? Can you just, can, yeah, can you walk me through it? Because I didn't read that piece yet. I will read it, but I haven't done. Yeah, well, there's there's two things to say. Because Arsenal have uh, Tierney uh, as a left-sided centre-back as well, um, but one who pushes forwards really quite high. Um, what it means is that when you're kicking with your left foot towards the left side, you can get the ball to curl uh, away from the centre of the pitch and then come back around. Whereas if you're a right-footed centre-back in that outer left position, your natural kicking angle takes the ball infield first, which makes it easier to press and easier to cut off that passing lane. So it's basically, uh, it offers more security and transition because when you kick the ball, it's not going as close to the opposition, basically. The opposition have to spread wider to try and cut off that passing lane. Uh, and, and Gabriel had a huge amount of the ball go through him. He completed 109 passes, which was more than any other Arsenal player. Um, he attempted considerably more than any other Arsenal player as well. I think defensively, which, you know, was sort of the question that you posed at the beginning, you know, what did we learn about him against Fulham? Uh, nothing <laughs> as a defender, really. Um <laughs> Because Fulham, Fulham were were really quite bad in the final third. Um, I, th- I think that you know Fulham were an incredibly high possession team, um, high pass volume team last season. I think they were second. If if you put all Premier League and Championship sides together, they were second for pass volume and possession. So we knew that their build up would be good, um, but it was slightly baffling, I think, to leave Mitrovic on the bench for so long. Um, Kamara didn't really offer a great deal up front and I, I don't think defensively Arsenal were, were tested at all to be fair uh, Can I ask you Seb about uh, about Michael Hector I don't want to leave Fulham untouched in this part of the conversation when I saw him I don't know if this is this is a kind of uh, uh, an unconscious bias on my part to judge people who are taller and stronger looking uh, as better defenders when they enter the pitch but when I saw him I thought oh he's going to be a good defender and I thought he had, generally speaking had, had quite a good game he looked frustrated at times um, and he, he he's of course only just arrived at Fulham, but uh, he he looks like a capable player. W- what do you think about him? Yeah, I've never been quite sure about Michael Hector. I mean, the, I can't detach him in my mind from the moment when, when when Chelsea signed him, and there was a little bit of a backlash from the fans. Um, it wasn't really about Michael Hector at the time. It was just because um, Chelsea had grown used to signing a particular type of player, and that was during the period where you know their transfer policy became a little bit underwhelming. Um, and it caused a little bit of consternation among their the fan base. Yeah. I like him as a footballer. I think um, I think you're showing your age a little bit, which is great for me to be able to say that to you rather than the other way around, um, in, in kind of what we assume to be um, uh, like a, a good centre-half, because I think exactly the same. When I see someone of that build, um, especially in the Premier League, I find it really reassuring that like you see someone that can physically yeah. look after himself. I think he's a pretty good footballer. I think I think the side of it, the, the actual technical side of Michael Hector's game gets a little bit... Um, overlooked um from time to time um, yes i i wonder whether when we talk about fulham's defense and their individual defenders i'm i'm instructed by what i saw last time round when they had some pretty good defenders in their pack like i remember them signing alfie mawson last time they got promoted and the whole system was so poor that everyone kind of suffered individually as a result so i'm a little bit yeah. worried for him um in that regard but i do like him as a player 
there's an interesting point here very quickly to make though which which i think i first encountered in in soconomics which is that when you're scouting players there are certain things um that have very little to do with football that make a player stand out so for example scouts are more likely to write a good report or have their eye caught by blonde players rather than dark haired players because ah. they stand out more. Um, by the same token, I think free kicks are often overrated because the game stops for a free kick. So everyone can kind of concentrate and it makes it easier to remember that instance rather than what happens during the ebb and flow of the game. And I think potentially, you know, very tall footballers with, um, with hairstyles that stand out. Are, well, are, are yeah, players or, or that, like, you, that you notice more, even if they aren't actually doing as much. They catch the eye simply because physically they stand out compared to the players around them. Another possibility to add to your list: I texted Seb during the 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 Everton Tottenham game, and I said uh, Everton are a much more attractive team than Tottenham. I mean, literally in the physical appearance of the players, um, mm. and you know, perhaps it was just because uh, Pierre. Hoiberg uh, wasn't having a very good game and looked a little sweaty, but um, you know I felt like all of the new players that Everton had brought in looked um, were very physically attractive. I wonder if that plays a part too. They they are quite a handsome team. We should certainly explore that. You, you know, yeah. though, when, when you uh, when you texted me, um, it we 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 spoke about this at the time, but um, Pierre Emil Hoiberg looks like Ethan Hawke during his training day years. He, he does. Months. It's yeah. it's quite um, unsettling, which, they, which they, suggests they, a, a positive moral attitude. But you know, and yeah, and, a, and a future career of fantastic indie film choices. Oh, well, he certainly stands up for himself. And like Denzel's quite a, a bad influence in that film, obviously. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Ethan is Ethan Hawke is on the right side of that argument. I'd say. Who's the Denzel Washington of the Everton team? Interesting. Like I feel yeah. that's the kind of thing that if I answered it, we could probably get sued somehow for a kind of tenuous reason I don't properly understand. <laughs> we'll, we'll circle back around to that in a few Yeah, well, years. let's just go back to the football. Let's go back to our comfort zone, I think. <laughs> well, I, I want to... Comfort zone. Let, let's talk about Willian, uh, because Willian... Of course, it was fairly big news uh, that he refused the deal that was on, on the table at Chelsea, which seems fairly so. They seem to have a number of players who can play in those forward wide positions now. Um, and uh, he moved to Arsenal, started the game, played very well. He was a, a significant part of that first goal, the, the sort of goal-mouth scramble goal, uh, which uh, Lacazette eventually touched in. And um, I think that, uh, you know, personally, from my perspective, watching that game, it seemed that that goal really gave Arsenal the confidence that they didn't have prior to that. Uh, they weren't playing particularly well. I thought they were quite nothingy before the first goal. Um, and then the team changed completely. Um Alex, what did you make of of, uh, of Williams' performance? Because it's been a long time since Arsenal have had a player of that profile in that position, i.e., a right-footed player at right wing. Yeah, he he didn't play right wing though, particularly. I mean, he drifted in a lot. I, I think I think what's quite interesting is that he his his style of playing right wing at Chelsea, uh, and I think we talked about this in a previous pod was was very much about what he did without the ball. It was very much about the the pressing side of it. And, and then when he did attack, he would quite often stay really quite wide and, and use that right foot to deliver crosses in. Here we saw him um, moving very much more into the, the centre of the pitch, um, kind of almost playing as a 10 at times. And and I think there's a, there's a real benefit for Arsenal there because... William is an astute presser. He's he's very dynamic with the ball, uh, and he was able to link play. His movement was intelligent, and and I think that that Arsenal front unit 
once they got going and it did it did take a little bit of time i i agree um but once they got going they looked a lot more fluid um bellerin was creating an awful lot going wide right but also cutting inside and when when bellerin cut inside william would move out and vice versa so there was some really nice kind of interchange and, and swapping on that side there um and i think you know it it it, it bodes really well for arsenal that there was a after that sort of first five, ten minutes, there was a real fluidity uh, in in how all of the front players worked together um, and, you know, Lacazette dropping off. But I think the thing that struck me most was that there wasn't really a moment where you felt like there were too many Arsenal players in the same part of the pitch. Um, there, there was enough movement and enough interchange that, that they didn't crowd each other out, uh, that the runs were making space for other players to move into, um, that you know, if one was overlapping, one was cutting inside. It it, it looked it looked good. Uh, again, with the caveat that it was against Fulham, who are a newly promoted side, and bedding in a new centre back and all the rest of it. But I think the signs were very promising. Seb, I mean, William has won the Premier League twice with Chelsea. Um, presumably, that is the sort of uh, invaluable experience that uh, is is useful to add to your to your squad. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's. I think how valuable that commodity depends on the kind of squad that the player's coming into. Um, I think there are winners in that team. There are players who, uh, you know, have dealt with the kind of the pressures that exist at World Cups. I think an interesting dynamic is that William, um, William and David Luiz get on very well. There's actually a story out this morning about how um, Oscar, the um, the former Chelsea attacking midfielder, when um, when William uh, joined, apparently David Luiz and William tried to convince him to come back to England as well. Um, I think I, I really like. It. I find it very reassuring when there is that those little networks exist within a team, um, within a squad. Um, but William is also a really good player. I, I feel like he's a little bit of a victim of the length of his contract because obviously he came into the club and the talk was not of what a good player he still is because he very much is, but the length of the deal, the size of it, and how that related to the redundancies that Arsenal had just announced. Um, and that's a very pertinent conversation but it's not it's not necessarily it's absolutely not his fault that he's kind of he's arrived into that scenario um but yeah like if if it had been a two-year deal you know or even just a one-year deal i don't think anyone would would disagree with this being just a a really smart little addition um and as a footballer like i feel like um arsenal haven't had a player of that profile for quite a long time you know they haven't had someone alex talked about how he drifted in against fulham like Arsenal haven't really had a player that seems comfortable moving from out to in, if that makes sense, on that side of the pitch. They've had Theo Walcott there. Alex Awobi would would play there a little bit as well. Um, I just I, I really like the sort of the, the style of footballer that he is. He's just a a really good utility attacking player that can do lots of things on the ball and lots of things without it. Uh, it's just uh, yeah, just a really encouraging start. Okay, well, very exciting. I'm pleased for William, who seems like a nice chap, doesn't he? Uh, let's talk about the goalkeeping situation, though. Seb, I'm going to throw it straight back to you. Explain to me what this issue is here, because I've kind of missed this in the summer. Yeah, it's a bit confusing. So, obviously, um, when the restart happened, um, Burton Leno got injured against Brighton with that uh, that, that incident with Neil Marpe. Um, and in came Emiliano Martinez to take his end. He played very well. I mean, a lot of people made the mistake of thinking that he was a kind of a young up-and-coming goalkeeper. He's actually in his late 20s. And he's waited an awfully long time to have a, the, the opportunity as a number one. And he did brilliantly. He was excellent in that sort of that mini FA Cup run. 
he had a couple of moments which um, weren't bad, but were sort of um, less than spectacular. Um, didn't have a, a particularly good game against Tottenham um, at White Hart Lane or Tottenham Hotspur, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Um, but he's a kind of goalkeeper. He, he's a he's a contrast to Leno, who I've always feel like Leno um, Leno is more likely to make a spectacular save. Uh, he is probably technically the better goalkeeper. But the uh, Martinez's fundamentals are really interesting. Like he um, he catches the ball a lot. The ball doesn't bounce off him. So when he makes saves, there was a there was one against Manchester City which he made off. I think Bernardo Silva could be wrong about that. Um, a really good plunging save to his left hand side, and the ball stuck to his glove. Doesn't come off him. Doesn't give up rebounds. Um, and that was a big part of Arsenal winning the FA Cup. And he's obviously um, moved to Villa for a lot of money. And I just wonder. I I. I it's um it might be a decision um instructed by the economic situation and um the pressures exerted by uh the pandemic but it just seemed as if for the first time in a really long while arsenal had two goalkeepers that could really compete could really compete for the same position at a high level uh, and not in a kind of Almunia Fabianski's sense, um, <laughs> where it's just kind of like I, I appreciate Fabianski's gone on to become a very fine goalkeeper, but back then he really wasn't. Um, yeah. And I don't know, it's just it's just a shame. I think that um, having having finally had the chance to make a name for himself at Arsenal, as soon as his window opened, it shut again. Um, and he's kind of wanted the opportunity to move. I just feel like maybe uh, you know, from a fundamentals perspective, Martinez, you know, Martinez wasn't obviously inferior. Um, so it just seems it seems a little rash to me. That's all. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I wonder if that's just the perfect scenario for Arsenal that they get a spell to test their second keeper, who they know maybe it wants to leave and maybe they can make some money on. He performs really well over the course of a couple of months, and then they probably sell him for a lot more money than they would have done if yeah, that hadn't absolutely. happened, right? You're not getting twenty million pounds for him if if he gets sold in April. Um, with that no. question, I think that's a very very good point, Joe. Okay, well, best of luck to him. This podcast is brought to you by Hims. Now, if you haven't heard of Hims, they're basically your best mate when it comes to those tricky men's health problems. Balding is an awkward topic for men, yet a lot of us start to lose our hair before we hit 40. And the best way to take control of hair loss is to do something about it while you still have some hair. Don't wait until it's all gone before you do something about it, because it's more difficult then. Hims was created to make it easier for guys to seek care, especially guys who avoid seeing their doctor in person for awkward health conversations. Hello, because not everyone wants to have personal conversations face to face with a stranger in a white coat. Personally, I don't at all. I'm worried they're going to take me away. So Hims connects you to real doctors online, which could save you hours. It's completely confidential and discreet. You get a proper consultation and they'll give you sound advice on just what you can do to help your hair before it's too late. And it couldn't be easier to book your free consultation. Just go to forhims.com forward slash athletic. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot co.uk forward slash athletic. Okay, let's discuss Liverpool Leeds. Uh, it was the evening game on the opening day of the season. Uh, 4-3, exceptionally exciting. I don't know about uh, both of you. I felt, uh, you know... Bad for Leeds come the end of that um, difficult penalty to give away. A striker's penalty, as uh, as the, the pundits kept saying. Um, but Leeds were I exceptionally exciting. And bar the fact that I couldn't uh, recognise any of the players because half the team has a top knot. And that's not a criticism of top knot, by the way. It's just ordinarily <laughs> it is a, a, a identifiable feature 
in a footballer, you know, oh, that's the one with the top knot. That means he's this person. And, and when I'm learning about a team that I haven't spent much time watching, I'll focus on the top knot. I spent the first half of the first half thinking like that guy with the top knot is so good. He's, he's everywhere. everywhere. He's he everywhere. is like all <laughs> over the place. I, I, I have a free role. I didn't realize this was part of Bielsa's approach. Um, speaking of, let's talk about Bielsa's approach. Uh, I want to hear about his setup. I want to see to what extent that he, he did achieve it. I believe Alex was unavailable to watch this game. So we've subbed in Seb as our tactical appreciator for, for, for this segment. And I, I, for one, cannot wait to hear him do his best. Alex Stewart in <laughs> what was really interesting is that for most of this game it looked as if neither team was playing with the midfield um and there were times where like Leeds I think a lot of people a lot of people who watched Leeds in the championship thought that there'd be some modification to their press once they arrived in the champions in, in the in the Premier League because you look at sort of um you look at the way that players play the ball out from the the, the back in the Premier League and in this instance, you're looking at someone like Virgil van Dijk, who's you know, as a, a passer as there is at this level. Um, and you thought, okay, Leeds are going to be a little bit more conservative. Um, and I think I counted three or four times in the first half where Leeds were pressing high with about five players. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it was, yeah, it was wonderful. It was, I mean, yeah, no, totally. It, given, I mean, I look, I, a full disclosure, um, I haven't really enjoyed football without the crowds, even on television. I, I just don't. Um, it, it, it's something missing for me and I, I don't engage in the same way and this was one of the first games I've enjoyed since the restart where it actually I think um, many people feel like properly. that I hope so because and I, I think part of it was Leeds approach because it was high octane it was full-blooded um, and there was a real spectacle to the way they worked without the ball which I didn't expect to see I, I, I knew I knew what, when I when I when I tune in to watch Leeds in the championship I knew what to see what I was going to see in in the Premier League, sometimes, and this isn't necessarily about Bielsa or Leeds, it's just about promoted size in general, um, you sometimes see a little bit of a conservatism creep in. You, you, they get caught between what they've been doing well and what they think they should then be doing to survive. Um, and I suppose, rationally, Bielsa is the last person to make a kind of concession like that, isn't he? <laughs> um, but it was, it was structural chaos and it was absolutely wonderful as a result. And also, hey, listen, let's not... Let's not let's not go overboard with praising the press because actually a lot of what Leeds did with the ball was excellent. Like Jack Harrison's yeah. goal was was really good. Yeah. Uh, the third goal, um, Glick's goal, like the 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 first touch and the yeah. control the control volley of a spinning ball. That's as good. I know it's I know it's not going to make the kind of the end of season highlights, but that is as good a technical goal as you're going to see all season. Really great. And it was the first game I've seen for, for a really long time, which I've actually enjoyed and invested in. And I haven't ended up muting and watching something else on like Netflix or something at the same time. Um, I probably shouldn't admit to that, but I, I find it I find it really hard to engage properly with football without the crowd. And um, this was the exception to that rule. It was just great to see. I, I agree with what you said, Seb. I loved how high Leeds pressed. I thought it was just hilariously exciting. I couldn't believe that there wasn't a midfield. Uh, I did wonder what it would make Liverpool fans feel about the the, the possibility of incoming transfers. But you know, there's been a lot of discussion about about Thiago, hasn't there? And I did wonder fans watching that game what they might feel about uh, their midfield afterwards. Should we be worried about Liverpool in this regard? Because I mean, I don't you know don't want to use this as an opportunity to take away from Leeds' performance, who I think were, were fantastic. But that isn't the Liverpool that uh, we have come to to know. Were they simply frazzled by Leeds, or is it you know perhaps something about tiredness? So they just didn't didn't seem quite as sharp, with the exception, of course, of Mohamed Salah. Seb. 
So when I watched the game uh, on Saturday night, I thought, yeah, this is a little bit strange um, because there's, I, I think I sort of bought into all the ideas about, you know, what happens to a team when, you know, they complete their cycle, when they win everything there is to win. As the weekend went on, though, and I saw a few, a few of the other teams, I think appreciated just um, what an issue fitness is going to be this year because you see the yeah. chaos in some of the other sides yeah. and you see um, uh, how loose some of the, the mechanics were around the, the division. I think it was just a, a fitness thing. I think yeah, we're going to talk about Tottenham, game, by the way, but carry on. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, they, they, they were the worst example of the lot. But I think in Liverpool, I think one of the issues was like Jordan Henson was clearly not fit. Um, yeah. And... Over time, um, we're hearing more and more of the stories from preseason coming out about, um, you know, quarantining and some players not getting the right amount of time with um, with the rest of the group. And so I, I think we have to, at least in these, these first few weeks, I think we're going to have to excuse some of these imperfections and certainly not read too much into them. Um, I think Liverpool could do with a, um, a little bit of a refresh um, and, a, and a little bit more competition in certain areas. But I don't necessarily think this is a manifestation of that issue. I think it was just one of those things. And also, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to use words like underestimated, but I, I think maybe, um, I think it was quite reasonable for Jurgen Klopp and Jurgen Klopp's players to think that Leeds would be a little bit more conservative, but they weren't. And um, they got rattled. Like it was, there were some uncharacteristic moments, certainly the Bamford goal. Like, how often do you see yeah. Virgil van Dijk do that? I mean, you can uh, count on one hand over the last three years. Um, so it might just be an oddity. I, th I, I think we need to see a couple more games before we start. Um, start you um, oh, sorry. No, I was, I told Harry, you, you, I was you, just going to say... A, you go, you go. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to say that you could see that Virgil van Dijk was having a, a bad game just yeah. based on how hard he was trying to have a good game in attack. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, he, he, he was clearly frustrated and uh, when you know when his goal was disallowed quite fairly i think i mean i understand why he was angry because he he played no part in the in the block off uh, uh, you know on uh, route to the goal um but he was you know he's clearly furious on the basis that yeah, he he hadn't had a stellar performance to to that part you mentioned patrick bamford i did want to talk about him just very briefly and i know it's it's a bit of a tried and tested topic um but there's been so much conversation about whether or not he could he could make it in the premier league to me certainly on the evidence of this game he looked like he was essentially at home I think he's obviously supported by the fact that Leeds just have a lot of big, strong players around him who are all ex extremely fast as well. And therefore, he's going to be able to find space. But he's he did exactly what he was he's he's there to do in terms of drawing people, in terms of making those runs and also getting a goal when a mistake um, presents an opportunity. I thought he was... I did think he was fantastic, but I thought he was basically good. And that's presumably, you know, the first, first uh, port of call to answering that question that so many people had. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we, we actually, we texted about this at the time because when he scored his goal, I think we both said uh, it's it's good for him because had he not, then maybe we're going into two or three weeks when he doesn't score yeah. um, and he's got a £30 million forward sitting on the bench behind him. And even, yeah, I think actually um, Patrick Bamford mentioned this on his Twitter, within 24 hours of Leeds winning promotion, people were going, oh, he's not going to score goals and, at the level above. You know, hasn't got a good record in the Premier League despite, you know, he's, yeah, I think he's, only, he's played fewer than maybe 20 games at that level. Um, and so I, I think it was a, a good way to kind of silence the conversation. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I don't know whether really um, goals are the currency for a forward in that formation. I mean, they're important because he's a centre forward and you'll always be judged by them. But I think the, 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 the value in, in Bamford is his work rate. And I, I do accept that that's a little bit of a euphemism for forwards who don't score goals. Um, it's kind of the Roberto Soldado excuse at Tottenham. Um, you know, well, let's use him as a number 10. He works very hard, you know, that kind of stuff. But in this case, I think um, 
This was the perfect example of that. Bamford makes the effort to be in position to capitalise on the mistake, um, to not allow Virgil van Dijk to be um, so flippant with his clearance, um, uh, so carefree with his defending, and he takes advantage of that. Is he someone that's going to uh, score, you know, is he going to take every chance he gets? I don't think so. Is he, is he going to be more of a kind of a one in five opportunities guy? Probably. But that doesn't make him any less valuable at this moment because there, as we've already seen, there are other players in that Leeds formation that can score goals. Um, and they are not reliant on one method of attack to score their goals. They're not mining goals from the same area over and over again, like a couple of other um, newly promoted sides have been, um, have done over the last few years. It's going to be instructive to see uh, City and United play next weekend, I think, so that we can try and have some kind of basis for, for fitness levels, but also what what expected level of performance we, we should have. Because Chelsea, you know, we mentioned them already. They, 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 weren't, they weren't fantastic. Uh, oh, no, we haven't mentioned them already, have we? We were going to chat a little bit about Chelsea. We might do that if we have time at the end. If not, I'll just say uh, now that they, they didn't strike any fear into Brighton. Quite the opposite. Brighton, I thought Brighton were fantastic in that game. They really took the game to Chelsea. Uh, and uh, we mentioned this beforehand, but Kai Havertz was just seemed kind of invisible. Like he didn't really seem to make any impact on the game at all. He was subbed off at 80 minutes, and I didn't notice he was gone until 87 when I texted him. Uh, so I think you know, I think it'll be instructive for us to, to see the performances of Manchester City and Manchester United um, ne- next weekend or the coming weekend uh, to see if we can make any kind of early comparisons on the basis of how strong teams are supposed to be playing, with the idea in mind that that that, that fitness problem is going to be um, ever present. I would have thought for for most clubs uh but next let us discuss tottenham everton okay i want to start with everton's uh, new look midfield here uh because the the effect of abdullah decore and alan and also of course a uh, pre-existing player andrea gomez in that in that midfield it was so exciting. I mean, I, I'd kind of, you know, I'd seen that these transfers were taking place with, with Everton. Obviously, the big pull had been Hamas Rodriguez over the last few weeks. And so that had been the, the one that most people have been focusing on. Uh, Alan had sort of it registered in my subconscious and uh, not really, you know, not really transferred to my conscious that much. Uh, and also, I think, um, Abdullah Decore, I, I have been very impressed by him in, in, in last season at Watford, but I didn't, you know, I just didn't, didn't really make that jump until I saw them all together. And then suddenly, I got very, very excited, Seb. Uh, and uh, you can you can see why, can't you? They just provided an incredible platform for Everton's uh, attacking players to to move forward from. They just seem to be in control of the game at all times. Their tight passing not only uh, was it exceptionally crisp, but the pace with which uh, that that their passing happened and was you know it felt like the wonderful one touch, also one touch control, and then pass on football. Tottenham. It didn't look like they wanted to run anyway, but even if they did, you felt that they would have had a difficult time dealing with the way that Everton's midfield controlled that game. And that is in their first game playing together with a bunch of new players there. For me, that is a very positive sign for the season. I don't know if I'm getting too carried away, um, but uh, Alex, do you want to take me through that the Hammers Rodriguez part of this, how he fits in and what his influence on the the attacking players? Yeah, I, I think I think it was a fantastic performance by Everton. Um what I really, really liked about it was, so Alan had this stellar season uh, at Napoli under Sarri um, and played on, on the, the right-hand side of a midfield three, pushed forward a lot, did a lot of the defensive work as well, but a genuine kind of box-to-box midfielder. Here, he was much, much deeper playing the... the he Ducouré played what I thought Alan's role would be. 
um, and there was a fluidity there, the way that Decore was getting ahead of the rest of the midfield, the way that Gomez was dropping away from the 10 spot into the kind of deep left um, half space and playing balls forwards. Alan keeping everything solid, James Rodriguez drifting in and out. Like this, this was a midfield who at no point during certainly the first sort of 60 or 70 minutes that I watched at any point looked like they didn't know exactly what they were supposed to be doing. So again, as as we said with, with Arsenal too, there was a fluidity about the interchange there. When when Gomez dropped off, Dakure would push up. When Gomez stayed high, Dakure would drift slightly wider and Hammers would drift inside. Like this this was a very, very well oiled very kind of functional midfield with everybody doing specific bits and pieces. Um, Alain kept it very, very solid at the back. Uh, and I think, yes, he was helped in that by the um, the lack of, of a sustained and thoughtful pressing by Spurs, which I'm sure um, Seb will want to talk about later as a Spurs fan. <laughs> um, but, you know, ev- everything here seemed with Everton to be about, like you say, um, Joe, progressing the ball crisply forwards, but doing it in such a way as to make sure that there was a, a receiving player between the lines. And I think that was what was so clever, was that every time the ball was moved forwards, it was moved forwards to a, a player that was in a position to receive it in between the lines, who almost clearly knew what the next pass was going to be as well. Uh, I think you saw good switches of play from left to right by Gomez and from right to left uh, by James Rodriguez. Dina was able to find an awful lot of space on the left-hand side. If there was any criticism, I think it was a criticism that, that was also highlighted in the commentary um, that I watched, which was that Calvert-Lewin occasionally looked a little bit isolated uh, and maybe Richarlison will play slightly tighter in towards him. But, you know, this this was a side that was arranged as a, a 4-2-3-1, but there was so much movement and so much interchange that... It was very difficult, really, to kind of say what the actual formation was. At times, it looked like a four-four-two. At times, it looked like a four-three-three. Was it yeah, a lot very... of places had it down as a four-three-three as well, which confused me because that is not what yeah. I thought at the beginning of the game. It's it's not, and and you can. I mean, one of the ways that you can sometimes detect that is to look at the the position that the players are in when they're pressing or in their their mid block which actually, to me, almost looked more like a 4-1-4-1. But then again, there would be mobility from the central presses. Sometimes that would be Gomez almost pushing up into a 4-4-2, with Richarlison staying wide, Tamez staying wide. At other times, it would be Decore that would push up um, and, and, you know, it... But you could you could see again that that, the the defensive system, it wasn't a really active or aggressive press. but they knew what they were doing. They knew where they were supposed to be. And I think what we can infer from this is that, you know, Ancelotti, whether it's because he's had enough time or because he's a good enough coach or because he, uh, you know, has a relationship with some of these players already, he's got a plan. And I, and I think from, you know, I didn't watch an awful lot of, of the football over the weekend, but to me, the two teams that you could look at and say from a tactical perspective, they really clearly had a plan were Everton and Arsenal. Um, and I and I don't think you could necessarily say that as much for the other teams. Um, so yeah, very very promising start. Just two things to pick up on there. I would say uh, I think this was pointed out by the commentary team too. 
But at times last season, Everton had the most success when they played Richarlison a lot closer to Calvert-Lewin. So that, that, there's a, there's a yeah. point to be made there. And I wonder how it's a bit of a jigsaw um, trying to fit the, all of those players, including James Rodriguez, into that. So it'd be interesting to see if they do do play around with the system at all um, or if it's different indeed when they play a team that, that would consider to be below them in the in, in the league positions. Um, the other thing is, I, I, you mentioned um, Ancelotti's relationship with some of those players or prior relationship. What I loved about this game, I think it was my favourite moment, was when Hamas Rodriguez is being substituted off and he's walking to the sidelines and he's walking over to Ancelotti. He looks up to, looks up at him and he makes this kind of very subtle eyebrow quirk, uh, which is suggestive of a, you know, of a kind of a, of a friendly, mutually respected relationship. Obviously, they have a have a prior relationship too. Um, and it just seemed, it seemed so subtle. It seemed very, uh, it seemed very cool, I thought. It seemed like... Um, it's the sort of reaction I would have had after playing a game of football like that. Just uh, no big deal. Pretty cool. That's going quite well. It suggested a maturity. I mean, I haven't spent a huge amount of time um, watching Hamas Rodriguez off the pitch. So I, I really don't know anything about him. Um, but I felt like it was a sort of um, a bit of body language that was re- very revealing potentially about uh, about the about the character. Um, Seb, I'm going to let you talk about Spurs because they were just fucking awful. <laughs> You know what? They they were so bad that um, I spent part of the second half paying my council tax, and I had a good time. Wow. Like it was satisfying. <laughs> like it was, I felt like I'd achieved something. Um, it was yeah. so it was so dispiriting, and for a few reasons. I think the um, let's let's put the caveat out there to start with because we've talked about um, uh, conditioning and the problems posed to Liverpool by the schedule. Tottenham have suffered similarly. Um, Harry Kane, I think, only tra- uh, only trained once with the group. Um, after returning from England duty, um, there have been other disruptions. Um, very clearly, Jose Mourinho wants to um, do some further transfer business, which he hasn't had the opportunity to do yet. Nevertheless, with all of those excuses uh, out of the way, it was embarrassing. It was actually humiliating. Um, not because um, not because Tottenham lost, because that's actually, uh, as you guys have just covered, that's actually shaping up to be a really good Everton side, hopefully. Um, I think the... Um, the attitude was not just suspect but really concerning um obviously whilst um whilst we've been waiting for the season to start a lot of us have been watching the all or nothing series um and there's quite a few instances during it where um in the various episodes a player talks about how much respect they have for jose marino what a privilege it is to play for him you know how much they could learn now what i'd say to people is look at the player's eyes when they're talking they just look it just looks so it, it looks so lifeless and uh, like a just automated and weird and it, it was just it's the PR line really, isn't it the best coach but it's in also, the world well it, it is and also you know a, a lot of a lot of Tottenham's kind of you know subliminal messaging since Mourinho started um came into the club has been look we'll do what we can with this year but next season fresh start new beginning you know clean slate for everybody that's when we start to judge people um and it was it was the worst Tottenham opening day performance I've seen since probably they lost to Sunderland to a very very late I think Michael Chopra goal um years and years ago or the um the Ivan Campo game at, at Bolton it was just so hopeless there was no there was no um the the, the main criticism of Mourinho would probably be that yes there was no pressing um but also there was no effect from any of his changes any of his substitutions I mean he shifted the change of the shape of his defense he went to a back three when he removed Matt Doherty um 
he brought on a more dynamic midfielder and Musa Sissoko. He replaced Dali Ali. Um, he brought on um, he brought on uh, Tangi and Dombele to try and um, change the passing dynamic in his midfield. Nothing made a difference at all. The tone of the performance was identical all the way through the game, um, and it actually deteriorated once Calvert-Lewin scored. There was no um, yeah. It was like watching a group of players sulk. You know, yeah, there was no comeback. You know, was there? It was no I mean, comeback. You spent the rest of the game like the only uh, genuine memories I have of the rest of that game from Tottenham's perspective was Harry Kane just repeatedly pushing people. Uh, at, you know, when yeah. the game stopped, like I, I swear that happened at three or four different incidences, and all I could think was like the the uh, <laughs> the repeated like mention of that scene in All or Nothing, where Mourinho is telling them to to like be bastards, be bastards on the pitch. You know, I feel like <laughs> it's just this is yeah. just this is all that's left of Harry Kane now. Is just a is just a man, uh, you know, gently pushing people around. When when, let's be honest, no one had done anything wrong. Just you know, completely unnecessary. Uh, well, that's you, all you, I remember about Tottenham, apart from just nothing. You know the 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 this the um the scene that made me think of is is when right at the beginning he talks to to Kane about you know the, what he's going to do for his profile in the game, try and make him a superstar. You know, Ronaldo, yeah. Messi, Kane. It's a little bit of an unrealistic objective anyway. Um, but you watch Kane and he just looks so miserable. Because there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing for him to feed off. There's no Tottenham don't really create chances. They they sit, they protect, they break, and there's no there's no structure to the attacking play. It's just mm. it seems as simple as let's try and get as many players forward and see if we can capitalise on those mismatches. And it was hopeless. Honestly, it's, it was it's, hopeless. It's very weird as well because I, you know, when I when I watch a team or when I watch a game where I know I'm concentrating on a particular side. I do tend not to notice an awful lot what the other team are doing um, because I kind of get fixated on on what I'm looking at. But it was very, very difficult to... This is going to sound like a weird thing to say. It was really difficult to notice Tottenham. It, it was like there was a, a group of people in blue that were doing all kinds of clever and intricate stuff. And then occasionally you'd see a white shirt moving towards somebody in a slightly lackluster fashion and then they'd disappear off again. Like that there was there was an absence to Tottenham's play, which is something I I very rarely observe in a game. And you know, there were one or two moments, like the Doherty's chance and the Alley chance as well. But by and large, you know, Tottenham were conspicuous by their absence rather than anything else. And and I I do think, yes. Like we said, Everton played really well, and 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 a lot of sides would have struggled to do that. But there was just there was nothing about Spurs where you could look at it and say that there's a consistent plan here. You know that there's a there's a pattern to what's happening um, that that makes it noticeable and makes it stand out to the eye. It just wasn't there. I don't think that's a weird thing to say at all. I think it's very very fair because the issue we've highlighted is passivity, um, and also. Yeah, I, I think it ties in quite nicely to the point that Joe makes about Everton's midfield, um, and Alex's point, you, your point about um, the way Rodriguez worked, is like you, you have this group of players that haven't played together at all, and it functions really nicely, and um, the implication being that on the other side of the ball, Tottenham were absolutely chaotic. Hoiberg was dreadful. Like his first game, so we make excuses, and you know it's, yeah. it's not fair to judge someone off that, but honestly. Um, it was one of the um, it was one of the worst Tottenham debuts I've ever seen, and that that's a long list, a long list. If you go back long enough, there's some very bad players on that list. <laughs> I worry with with Hoiberg. I, I worry with midfielders who leave Southampton um, and end up not 
doing as well because I particularly under Hasenhutl um, but also under Pochettino there was such a structure and a system to the way that Southampton press that I I think it's going to take quite a lot of time for Hoiberg to adapt to to moving away from being so system oriented into a different system Um, you know he he was he was rushing around. <laughs> he was trying yeah. to do stuff. It was it was the fact that, and I agree, he he was dreadful. But I wonder how much of that is because if he had been rushing around in that fashion in a Southampton side, he would have had James Wood Prowse knowing where to fill in, and he would have had Nathan Redmond tucking inside, yeah. and and yeah. the press would have been orchestrated. Uh, and there's again, there's a Tom Warville piece that I think was published today in the Athletic about the difference between pressing and pressure uh, and the idea of you know applying a single run towards the ball to try and force something to happen whereas pressing is like a sustained and orchestrated attempt to win back the ball with a series of movements that occur simultaneously um, we, we did a video on on Bielsa and Klopp and how they press which explains some of these concepts but you know Hoiberg was was applying pressure to the the ball or pressure to the man but there was no press around that because nobody else was doing it I yeah. this is it. It's, if there's if there's one thing which is worse than no press, it's one player pressing by himself. <laughs> Absolutely um, right. Yeah, it's it's and and I let, let's let's give him a little bit of an out. I think what I saw from Hoiberg was a lot of what Alex has described, but also a player who's very aware that he was making his debut, um, has been signed for quite a lot of money, um, that is you know at a new level in his career. Um, you know, if we discount the sort of the he knows he looks like Ethan Hawke. He knows he looks like Ethan Hawke, and he's trying to fight back against that. Um, but it was, uh, it was, it was so dispiriting and it was just kind of right. Well, you know, it would, Tottenham, Tottenham Mourinho is just, it, it reminds me of like one of those really, really unhappy marriages from my like grandparents generation where they're just, you know, they're kind yeah. of each other and they're just waiting for it to end somehow. I, I think, just, I think that's uh, death, why death like is that. the only escape. Exactly. I that. think that's yeah. why Kane boiled over as well, because Kane was, was doing individual pressures a lot too. Um, but but unsuccessfully because nobody was backing him up. So if he was moving towards Pickford, for example, there was always an easy out ball, whether it was to the right-hand side or even to the centre where Gomez was dropping in. And if you're Kane and you've got fitness problems anyway and you know your job is to be at the front to, to score opportunities, none of which came, and you're putting in the effort to try and close the ball down all the time and no one's helping you, like I'd lose my temper as well. It's I'm, just a waste of time. what though? It's the thing you do. Like that. If Mourinho hasn't asked for it, if the coach hasn't asked for for the players to do that, and actually the most recent episode of the the documentary that I watched, he talked about the forward line pressing and no one else pressing. Right. Yeah. So I mean that was a very specific, uh, very specific system, perhaps to that game. But if Mourinho hasn't asked for anyone to do that, and Kane realizes the game is going badly is trying to chase it it is not to be critical but it is the thing that players do when they are aware that the world is watching them uh, and uh, they want to make it look like they're trying really hard and they want to try hard is they pressure the ball even if no one else is and then they complain when other people aren't doing it like it's very difficult for us to say because we don't know what the coach has actually asked them to do we can assume that whatever that is it was probably was probably wrong on the basis of the the result and the performance but it as probably said as well Mourinho tried to affect like, the game several times like he did yeah. he he did try to make progressive changes and he got nothing from his players so in a way I feel a bit like defending him even if it, his toxicity is the reason that this has happened um we are going to have to wrap up i think because we've we've we all have a meeting to go to uh but before we do i want to talk about this uh, another time uh, so let's let's just pen this in the diary 
But the impact of those players watching themselves in that documentary, I don't think is insignificant at all. And I think it's release just before the season has started in the off season, a time where the players have the ability to watch it, discuss it, uh, you know, and make observations that they ordinarily wouldn't be able to make. I think is 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 very very significant. So I want to come back and talk about that another time. But for now, oh, yeah. we must go. Um, thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can download the Athletic by visiting theathletic.com forward slash tifo for one pound a month as part of an introductionary offer at the moment, which is really fantastic, incredible value, a wonderful deal. Please take us up on that. Uh, Seb, thank you. Thank you very much, Joe. Alex, thank you. Thanks, Joe. Producer Adonis, thank you. This is the difference between a team of and a team of good guys. There he goes. And uh, we'll be back next week uh, with something else that's the same but different. Bye, 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 bye. Bye.